0: Welcome to the Sluggrow Tool podcast. My name is Brian O'Neill, and in on this episode, we will be discussing the crisis in the GP service. My guests today are Dr. Michael McKenna, who's a Belfast GP. Then we have Professor Kieran O'Neill, who is an economist from Queen's University who specializes in health research. And Michael Donnelly, he is a facilitator with Future Search, and he works on helping groups address complex problems in society. So, thanks very much for being here today. Thanks, Brad. So just to set the scene, um, we all know the GP system struggling. I mean, we all have anecdotes from family and friends about people struggling to get appointments of, uh, you know, receptionists uh, trying to get through the triage system, waiting phone calls. Then we hear from the GPs, you know, the problem of getting staff and locums. So all these kind of things seem to show that a system is very broken and then, Underneath all that, you have the GP's pressure, managing ever complex public health needs, as well as handling innovation and in public health, like multidisciplinary teams. And then you have like COVID comes along and you're also expected to do mass vaccination programs and ultimately meet the demands of a, a public who expects more and more and more. Now, Michael, um, can I just ask, when did you first start as a GP?
1: So I qualified as a GP in 1997. Mm. Um, I did a training year, uh GP training year, interestingly, uh, interestingly in Glasgow, in a place, place called Castle Milk, um, which is a pretty rough part of uh, 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 Glasgow and, and actually not too dissimilar from, from where, I, where I work currently on the Falls Road. Um, Back then we had uh, around Forty-four places for GP trainees in in the north. Um, and at that time it wasn't enough. We exported most of our uh, trainees to the UK and Scotland and Wales, and we have many fine example of GP leaders across the other three nations who uh, started their life um in Queens, uh, doing medicine, and and we have set them off. Um. In that time, uh, we've seen the introduction of a new GP contract in 2004, um, and we have gradually increased GP numbers. um, And currently, we're trying to, uh, we've asked government if they will um, uh, recruit 140 new trainees. Within the mix of that, we have seen a huge change in uh, the the number the med, medical graduate uh, profile in that it has become predominantly uh, female. something like seventy to eighty percent of the workforce in general practice uh, under the age of 40 are female. and with that come all of the complexities in terms of recruitment, and in, in that working group because they, 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 work differently. Um, and we also see that in the male population who want to adopt a different type of working pattern because full-time general practice is no longer sustainable. Essentially because people get burned out doing, uh, doing that kind of work day in, day out, it's hard. Um, and you need to have some sort of variety, um, and actually it makes you a better doctor if you don't spend all of that time uh, within, um, within that one kind of uh, working environment, you need a little bit of variety.
0: Got it. I'm just trying to think, Gary, because Glasgow has got the has got the worst health in the, probably the whole UK and Ireland, so you kind of went into the baptism of fire, I suppose, there. Uh, I was watching a documentary of a GP in Glasgow, and she was interviewed, and she said... But um, in her area of Glasgow, I think the average, average life expectancy was like as low as maybe 60. And she was saying that she was talking with uh, one patient and she said, told him, if you keep going on drinking like this and, you know, your lifestyle, you're going to die within the next five years. And she said, mm-hmm. his reply to her was, uh, my life's shite. Why do I want to keep on living? Absolutely. I, I, Is and, a, a... <laughs> and
1: it totally sums up, Brian, what we know. Uh, about health in general, it's, it's yeah. social determinants that, uh, that, that, that make for your lifespan and make the big changes. And those are the, 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 overall driving reasons around why you have poor health. It's not the medicine. It's how you live, where you live and, uh, and how much money you have.
0: Just to, I mean, I was going to bring this in later, but just because you've brought this up, have you heard of this concept called moral injury? Um, Uh, Something I've discovered recently, let's do a podcast about it. But it's where whenever you are doing a job and you kind of know, not necessarily that what you're doing is bad, but what you're doing is it has no real effects. So, for example, like in a GP example, you've got like a single parent, three kids on a housing state, pitches up with, you know, mild depression. And you kind of know that it's nothing really to do with serotonin levels or any of these other things that we tell people. It's to do with the fact that she's a single parent of three kids living on a housing estate on her own. So the this kind of thing of moral injury kind of grinds you down because you realise that you're not really dealing with health problems; you're kind of dealing with society problems. And is that part of the reason why you think maybe GPs are quitting because they're seeing these so these people with so much problems that are so intangible and really nothing that they can solve medically, and it just kind of wears you down. I suppose,
1: Brown, those those problems have always been around, um, and we. I, I think we are moving as a system to try and change that. And the multidisciplinary teams are doing that in a way that that they have never thought of before. So we have the introduction of social workers into general practice. And they think about things differently, and they offer solutions that GPS would never have and and kind of had in their in, in their arsenal um, and offer solutions or or opportunities that we didn't have before. So um, but the biggest problem is, Brian, we need, we need more of it. Um, it's not, it, it, it has become a complete imbalance within the system. That, that I am hugely fortunate in West Belfast, to have uh, a full multidisciplinary, well, always a full multidisciplinary team. By my neighbors in North I have nothing in terms of that support. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, when you don't have that extra uh, help, you become helpless in terms of what you can do, and it does, uh, it does grind you down. And and general practice now is one of the the highest rates of burnout in any profession uh, across the health system. Um, throw on top of that, waiting uh, lists of up to ten years to get a hip replacement, seven years to see a rheumatologist, five years to see five years plus to see a neurologist. You know, and you have all of these people coming to you. Again and again and again and again to tell you the same story when things have got slightly worse and you have nothing else to offer them outside of writing a prescription, which yeah is probably going to harm them in the long term and that in itself causes moral injury, you know and you see that in secondary care colleagues as well um, when you have uh, demand that's completely outstripping uh, the resource that you have um, and then putting added pressure on you in terms of what you can quickly do for those, for individuals. And you end up becoming a reactive type service instead of proactive. And that's where we're, we are currently at. Michael,
0: Michael. so
2: Yeah, I'm really intrigued by that. I'm wondering over the course of your career so far, Michael, have you seen a change? Like, are we sicker as a population? Um, I know that our, you know, our needs our medical needs are becoming more complex, but are we sicker? Um, so what's the difference between you being a GP today and you being a GP the year that you started, you know, is there, is there something materially different?
1: I don't necessarily see um, sicker people. Um, the the demographic has changed. So we have more older people and that's going to continue. Um, but interestingly. Interesting. Now, older people are, 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 are not living as long as they did 15 years ago. And, and that was highlighted in the recent Nuffie report um, that, that looked at uh, the Northern End healthcare system um, particularly. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of balanced, but overall, apart from the complex older people, um, I don't think that there is any more sickness than there had been. Um, I think expectation and demand is higher. Uh, general practice has five, uh, so the average person will, will contact the GP in the um, six times in a year compared to uh, two or three in the Republic. And the Republic have slightly better outcomes. Um, so it doesn't kind of stack up, you know, that the more you see your GP, that the, the healthier you are. And in many ways, we've also lost the ability to self care. Um, which is frustrating. Uh, so you see the scenarios where um, uh, you see children over and over again with largely self-limiting illness because of parental worry, or you see worried well, um, and, uh, and, and the need to to get reassured all the time. I, I think we need to change that dynamic. Um, and we need to re-educate people into hard to look after themselves, take responsibility for their own lives and their own bodies and their own healthcare. Um, we talk about doing that, but enabling it and making it happen is a completely different challenge.
2: Oh, that's really interesting because I know that the, the favorite doctor in our house is Dr. Google <laughs>
1: It's
2: the first doctor we consult and, 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 I know that there's others who do that and we would genuinely try and sort of fix as much stuff as possible before we go near a GP. But. Um, I think there's mixed messages on that as well, oh, isn't there? Right. It's like um, you know, there's a, there's people self-diagnose terrible things whenever they read this article and then get into it. Of...
0: Oh, on, that, on that, maybe just to bring Kieran into the conversation, um, mm. one of the things I'm concerned about is in the modern world, a lot of people have this very consumerist mindset. You know, we're now used to, the amazon guy bring him whatever you want to your house the next day we've got the delivery guy who brings your dinner you know we kind of expect things almost we expect things almost instantly in terms of uh you know streaming netflix all the stuff on demand so is it feasible to have a free health service with this kind of consumerist demand for Access almost instantly and as much as they want. Do you know that from an ec- economic point of view is that feasible? I'm going to
1: give that one to care. Yes, okay.
0: well, care. Yeah, so that's scared Yeah.
3: The the short answer is no, because the wants will always outstrip our ability to actually satisfy those wants. We don't. We'd we'll never have enough resources to be able to meet the demands which we place the bond the service if it was entirely free at the point of the, at the point of delivery. And by entirely free, I mean. And um, not just that there are no out of pocket charges, but there's no waiting time, there's no waiting costs, those sorts of things. People would outstrip our ability to, um, to meet the demands very, very quickly. Yeah. Because the paradox,
0: the paradox of the GP service is if Dr. Michael made his system more efficient, all that would happen was it would just get more inquiries because people would contact, instead of waiting a week or two, people would contact the GP more and more so you have this kind of paradox is the more efficient we make the system it'll probably just increase the demand would that be correct well the more accessible
3: you make the system the more people will actually contact the service i imagine but that's not the same thing as efficiency so the efficiency would be how you're actually able to deliver and within in an optimal way in other words minimize the cost and maximize the outcome uh, in terms of the operation of the system so Efficiency is slightly different to accessibility.
0: Okay. And in your view, do you think that there really is no option other than having some kind of charge for to see a GP?
3: Um, in the south of Ireland, as you know, if you aren't a medical card patient or a GP card holding patient, you do actually have a charge to see the GP. And that's one way of restricting um, access and ensuring that the service isn't actually overrun, as it were. And, but I think on equity grounds, most of us in the North would agree that that shouldn't be introduced and that we should, in actual fact, um, ensure that we do have access to care and on the basis of need, free at the point of use. I think, I th- I think that is something that we are rightfully proud of having and, and something that I think most of us would like to continue to see to be the case. We could use ability to pay as a way of limiting the number of people who come to see the, the gp but the people who would be and um, the people who whose demand you would actually cut off would be those just above the threshold of the medical card patient if you know what i mean so we would continue to provide access i imagine to those who are on low incomes or all employed or pensioners or things like that and um, but then those who are just above that threshold in terms of uh, their income would be the ones that we would actually see the demand fall for and that's and you know, work that we've done comparing north and south, that's what you can actually demonstrate to be the case. It's those who are um hit most by charges, uh, whose demand is or whose utilization is actually limited most.
0: Okay. Because as you say, I mean what what you're basically saying is the flaw in the plan is, as Dr. Michael will sure let us know, most of the people who use the health service tend to be poorer. Um, because in this system, if you're like in the south, if you're poorer. You will get it free anyway, so it's probably having charges probably will not do much to control demand because it's the the poorest members of society who will be accessing it. Well, I,
3: I think if you introduce charges, it will reduce demand. That will be the case, and um, whether or not it reduces demand appropriately, I would suggest is probably and um, it it won't. It'll be a very blunt instrument. And again, do you necessarily want to reduce demand? And um, okay, the worried well are going to come and see and maybe they shouldn't be seeing you to the same extent as some of the uh, unworried unwell but the, the, you're still dealing with an issue there about their worries about their anxieties now it could be that that can be dealt with more effectively than currently being the case but at the same time you are addressing a, an issue
0: okay um, and Dr. Michael what's your view on kind of charging do, on, on for the mm,
1: Um my personal view um, with my uh, from my own perspective I don't think it's quite the answer. I agree totally with care. Um, it's not the panacea that uh, many would make it out to be and, and comes with its own set of problems. Um, and if if you look, I think if you look at what is happening with the cost of living, increases generally. It's pushing more and more people with middle incomes to food banks and you would have the same effect. Um, you, you would just keep that... Uh, that people will be spending more on their heating, on their food, and and cutting out that visit to the doctor. So you risk um, losing opportunities to to help people there if if you bring a charge in. And, and I, I, it certainly would be any thought around that. Um, I would have to say no to. Um, yeah. And it would be completely the wrong time to do it. Um, my goodness, I imagine. You decided to introduce a charge to say, the GP in the middle of uh, what the, the, in the middle of this economic crisis as it's as it's starting to go. There's no sign of that that ending anytime soon.
0: Yeah,
3: so I just it's the middle of the game. Has. I, I think also if you do introduce charges, it would change the nature of the relationship between the GP and the patient. It would encourage that consumerism approach whereas i don't think that's the relationship that we have with our general practitioners and you know, primary carers in general and it's not necessarily one that i think those on the primary care side of things would would want to necessarily see either you know, i i think there's a place for that in a in a health economy but not not within I, the nhs i think the nhs is something different i think that is something that we would want to yeah sure. i
1: think i think what we the conversation that we need to start having, Brian, is actually what the NHS will pay for as opposed to, um, you know, uh, charging for what you get currently. Um, and it's going to be a, a brave conversation. So you could start to take a look at um, prescribing uh, and decide that, you you know, you would only have a a, a recommended list of medications that the NHS Will provide that are evidence based that show that uh, these are the best medicines that uh, the person can get for their conditions, and if you want other ones, then you could think about maybe if, if somebody wanted to have a specified medicine because it was their choice, then you could have a third choice, a surcharge on that, um, or uh, you could look at a lot of over the counter products, and 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 say, well, we're not going to pay for those anymore. Um, and met, you know, and have a have a blacklist. Unpopular, um, but uh, I, I think we got to start having a, that 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 uh, that talk. You know, the other thing is sur- surgery. So access to procedures that are of less health benefit, or less, that don't have the outcomes, or don't have the um, uh, uh, the expected, or don't change people's lives in any way um, to any great extent. So, a lot of cosmetic surgery or removal of lumps and bumps you could consider in that category unless they're facially disfiguring. Um, uh, to, there are lots of instances and lots of things that you could uh, and lots of examples that you could give um that uh, that could help you know reduce that demand to a certain extent. um I think we could give our pharmacy colleagues um a lot more autonomy um. Or what you could do is is uh, even more radically take our pharmacy colleagues and put them in the primary care team and have dispensaries um, and uh, and put that uh, pool of expertise. Let our pharmacy colleagues become GP partners in the same way, or a partner in the in that in, in that uh, uh, establishment alongside the GPs. Bring that expertise and, and knowledge in. Not you know why why would you not consider that? How much do we spend, and uh, and in, in community pharmacies across the board, uh, keeping, you know, those places kind of afloat? Can we uh, reckon or bring all those that that group of staff together and the expertise, put it in one place? Um, I I you know those are just thoughts. I oh, thank like,
3: This sort of does pick up the point that I was saying earlier about efficiency. You, know, with specific regard to the pharmacists, for example, you have highly qualified individuals whose skills perhaps are not being used to their to their best effect currently, whereas they could be used to assist as part of the primary care team. We're not paying them as much as we would be doing at GP, so you are actually reducing costs and allowing them to um, deploy their skills to the to, to serve the public. So I I think those are the sort of things about the. Uh, Yep. What we were talking about previously was really the demand for services and how do you better manage the demand for services. Now what we're talking about is how do you actually better um, respond in terms of the supply of services? How do you uh, configure your primary care team to ensure that you make best use of, of the, the limited resources that are available? And that's not just the GP, but that's the team who works around the GP. You know, the pharmacists, the, the practice nurses, the social workers, the uh, psychiatric uh, team members, et cetera.
0: One thing I'm always curious of, Kieran, as be interested to get you as an economist, is I think what we need to encourage the kind of private operators and more, and let me just clarify this, I don't mean Virgin Health and all those guys. For example, like, I work with computers. So every few months my back goes and my neck goes and everything else. And I would not dream of going near my GP. I just speak with my local physio, gets me in, sorts out the problems, go directly. So can we not be doing more to encourage people to kind of be booking into your local physios, the kind of local operators, and maybe have some kind of, because the kind of thing that annoys me and annoys a lot of people is, according to my tax return, you know, tells you how much you're paying on health. I'm paying about two and a half grand a year in tax to the health service, and I get absolutely bugger all for it. So could you not have some kind of scheme where if I go to like a private physio that the NHS would pay half, for example, or you get some kind of rebate? And this encourages people, you know, not to pitch up at their GP every time they something happens to their back or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm just picking back because I know, Dr. Michael, you, a lot of your puppy patients is kind of back problems fixed like this. Could we not be doing the doing more to kind of encourage people just to go into the, the private market for, for these issues? Well,
3: I, th- I thought we were sort of doing that sort of thing up to up, up, up to a point. I'd be interested in hearing Dr. Michael's um, perspective on it. The sort of the social prescribing. You, know, you can prescribe people to go to aqua aerobics uh, as part of a way of trying to help them get weight loss or, again, keep mobility. So those sorts of things I thought we were doing. Now, perhaps we should be doing more of those sorts of things. And
0: um, But but you're still going via the doctor. I mean, what, what I mean is so it, instead of don't go to the doctor's surgery Uh, at all uh, or self-refer yourself on to the physio or on to the, you know, the therapist or the counseling or whatever, you know, just bypass the GP completely.
3: I, I don't know. And certainly if you're starting sort of any sort of exercise regime, when you're around about my age, there's maybe no harm in consulting the doctor and make sure that you're not going to drop dead on the treadmill or something like that. And so I, I, I don't know what, what its place is, the extent to which we can, uh, we should all I agree be managing our health to a greater extent than we are perhaps doing. So we should be all doing the things that we're recommended to by, and um, by the public health agency. You know, eat properly, don't smoke, drink in moderation, those sorts. Take exercise, right. and beyond that, you know, I think primary care, general practice, is important in terms of signposting us uh, towards the appropriate services. And perhaps um, protecting those services, acting as a gatekeeper. I'm sure a, a lot of the time that's what general practice is actually doing. Saying, "Yeah, I can understand your your concerns here, but we don't think this is a major problem. We'll look at it again, and then we'll refer you on if if needs be." So that's again the role of general practice as part of the overall healthcare system. And. Um, and it does. It does play an important role in that. You know, I'm sure I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. Whenever I say that the foundation of an efficient and equitable healthcare system is a strong primary care system, and and that's the the overall economy of health that we're getting into there.
0: Uh, Doctor Michael, can you maybe come in on that? Are you kind of surprised the things that people pitch up with? You're kind of going, why? Why you bother me?
1: I so, well, if you ask ten people why did they come to see the, the GP? On the day that they came, or why did they contact a GP? It's because they all thought that that was the right, that they were going to the right person to sort their problem out. It's the same way if you ask 10 people in the emergency department, you know, why did you come here today? I was, well, this is the place I come to to get sort of this problem sorted out. They generally think that they are in the right place to see the right person at the right time. Um, and the, the, the physician or, or clinician in front of them may, may disagree with that. And part of that is the education process. Interesting that you mentioned the physio, Brian. Um I have physio in my surgery. Uh, they're great. They take about between anything between ten to twenty percent of my consultations from me in a day. Um, because as you pointed out, a lot of people come in with their with their back issues, and um, we're starting to get data back that looks like, you know, uh, they they actually will stop people from going to ED and will stop. Uh, and reduce the impact of chronic pain um, down the line um, and I'm probably um, better at managing the musculoskeletal conditions than I am um, so you know the question is where, where you have access to the physiotherapist uh, there are other schemes um, starting to open up now where you, we you just self to physiotherapy um, so um, I, I don't see that uh, as an issue um, Questions where you have the physio, it's. I like the idea that they come to the the kind of extended primary care team because people actually present with musculoskeletal problems that turn out to be other things. So um, we've had the odd case who's turned up who's actually turned out to have uh, a cancer or an inflammatory muscular musculoskeletal condition such as rheumatoid arthritis, okay. but just presented with a sore knee or, or back pain. Um, and so you think it's a physiotherapy problem to start off with, but actually, uh, the physiotherapist knocked my door and said, well, how do we look at this one? I'm not so sure. Um, and you go, yep, not a problem. And then you get the problem sorted out much faster. So again, there's, 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 there's arguments for and arguments against, you know, um, uh, and, it ultimately it's it's as Kieran says, if you build a, a good primary care team and a good foundation with the skill set within that primary care team, are probably led by uh the decision maker who is the GP, um, in this instance, um, then uh then you will have a good foundation to your health service. You lose the your general practice, you lose the health service, the health service falls.
0: Okay. Michael, the you wanted to a bit
3: of the tape? I'm nodding uh, sort of vigorously yeah.
0: here. <laughs> There's the, a the gatekeeper role. Michael, you wanted to come in there?
2: Yeah, it was a question about, I think you mentioned about um, the money that comes from, like, what does the NHS want to pay for? Um, and it was that question around um, is the budget that's given to GPs, that's given to primary care, say, um, is it increasing over time or is it static? You know, so so... As an economics, you know where are you with this, um,
1: Michael? It depends. On, it, it depends is, on who you talk to, and who and, and what figures you look at on any given day of the week. Um, so general practice, it's probably it's about eight percent of the overall health budget, um, give or take. Uh, the argument is is how much you actually should give, or how much should you put into a good primary care team. And and if you're talking about a primary care team, I mean, that's the extended part that runs right out into the community that should include all the bits that look after your nursing homes, the bits that look after your palliative care patients in the community. You know, everything that comes back out of a big building should be part of your primary care team. You know, and there's arguments for how you build that and where the team should sit. And we still have, we're still, even though we talk about no more silos, and that was the last biggest project that we, that I again was involved with. Um, and we're still working in siloed ways, and we can't escape them. And we need to get our heads around that, you know. And and uh, we still have expertise that's sitting in a big building in the middle of a in, in the middle of a city that actually would be much better out in the community, um, and and helping and 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 dealing with the, the patients at that because you can do it much more efficiently. Um, and you do things innovatively and probably remotely as well. Um, uh, in a way that we, we were never able to do COVID gave us a huge amount in that, pers- in, in that respect. Um, and we consult now in ways that we, we never did, uh, prior to, uh, yeah. 2020.
2: So, so the, the question that that leads me to say then is is the model that's there at the minute of how primary care is organized in Northern Ireland, you know, is is that, is that the best model it could be? Because um, I think you've mentioned, you, yeah, like what's, what's really intriguing there about what you talk about there is I think the reach into and out of the secondary care system, which seems to be, there's a really critical relationship there that needs to be kind of um, more obvious or enhanced. So much more of the services that are integrated, so there's less of a big jump Primary care into secondary care. So is the GP and now they're starting, I think was a coalescent, the GP federation. So there's like, there seems to be kind of like some kind of clustering of GPs. Um, is, is the GP model, the one that is needed for the primary to base the primary care around or what would be the biggest changes that would help?
1: So the one thing that you should never lose in all of this is continuity of care. If you lose continuity of care. Your admission rate goes up and your um, number of people ending up with uh, cancer diagnoses or data presentations goes up. Uh, another huge number of other coverage uh, 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 we know increase by about 30% if you lose continuity. There's nothing better than a model that promotes uh, a lifelong relationship with uh, somebody who knows you and your family and where you're from and all your ins and outs. And, and they, they learn about your grandmother and your grandfather, who happen to have that genetic disease, and and you and you, yep. Yeah, um, it, it, and there's evidence to back that up, quite substantial evidence to back that up. And um, so that needs to be fundamental to any service that we ship, uh, from a primary care perspective. Um, and you also need generalist doctors to do that. You need doctors know, um, a bit about everything, um, and art experts, um. And again, uh, that's that's the GP role. Um, it doesn't matter what what healthcare economy you talk to, they all say the same thing, you know, and that's what provides the best buying for your buck. And if you put them in the leading um as a team you know of of other uh, healthcare professionals um in, in the middle of that, then you you will you will get uh, you will get better outcomes and you get better value for your spend. Um, currently we are still focusing too much of our resource at the wrong end of the, uh, at the wrong end of the, 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 the kind of the equation, we are firefighting, we're putting into too many big buildings and too many services gathered about this, unless we have brave politicians who one decide to get back into, uh, Stormont and then two. Make those brave decisions. That uh, what is it? Five uh, um, and five kind of reviews have all said, you know, reduce the number of buildings and spend the money more efficiently. Um, uh, then you know, I don't think if this does if this if it doesn't happen soon, you're not going to have a health service. It's, just gonna, it, it's gone. So 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 on
2: on that because I think this is absolutely anyway. massive. Okay, so this is kind of like a. Configuration of the health system. So where services are delivered and how they're delivered out of what building. Um, Everybody says we have too many hospitals, um, but try and take away a hospital from a a community. Like I live in South Down and between the Down Hospital and um, Daisy Hill and Uri. And, you know, to think, to listen to any politician locally is like, we've got your back, we're defending the hospitals. And then you turn around as that party's minister who's in in place, who's trying to, um, I don't know, hold this kind of crazy conversation where they're saying we know what needs to happen but we'll have to speak out of this side of our mouth to make sure that we don't lose our local support and stuff so the bravery is not there so something different has to happen apart from the politicians themselves having this as a, a decision to be made so, and I suppose that, in terms of my systems change yeah. kind of hat on would be like oh, what's the alternative way of doing that so, or, so or do, you, do, a, do you take it out, out of
1: the hands of the politicians altogether and create um uh, some sort of uh, uh, dynamic, okay. bit like the Bank of England, where there's it after its own uh, uh, things and and tries to keep it itself away from political interference, because we know politics is bad for the NHS. <laughs> yes. We know from England's example, there've been far too many reforms.
0: Yeah, this far is too the many. the chief executive have a like a chief chief executive for health basically. He makes all the decisions. Yeah. And-
1: yeah, who's accountable for accountable. The, the for idea him. that
3: it's in some kind,
1: Karina, you're you about yeah. to say exactly the same thing. Well, accountability. <laughs> well, kind of uh, well, I,
3: I, I, th- I think so. So, I mean, the, I mean, I've heard people talk about the equivalent of a policing board for health, where you have politicians involved in holding it to account, but you get around the issue that uh, Michael has referred to of sort of and um, local politics. Yeah, you know, we have an assembly where, you know, every seat is seen almost as an existential threat to, this, to the existence of the state. You know, if you lose one seat, the world is going to end. You know, and pol- that doesn't really encourage politicians to take uh, unpopular decisions, if I can put it that way, which are in the common good, but not necessarily with for the good of a of uh, a, 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 a local politician or those who want to hold on to a local hospital service, even though that hospital service is perhaps not the best way of meeting the needs of the population there. You know, it's, it's almost like a security blanket for, yeah. for for a child and the way in which that seems to be getting stripped away at the minute is when there are sufficient clinicians in those uh, hospitals that will deliver the service safely. So then it closes and is it, you know, that's not, that's not a good way of, of, of taking a strategic approach to your health service. And and just to, again, um, Dr. Michael, when he was uh, making some of the the, the introductory remarks about the, the investment in GPs and about the numbers of GPs, again, do we have the information which is actually necessary in order to, to plan our primary care system, let alone our secondary care system? We don't know what the full time equivalent number of GPs are that we have. How many GPs do we need to train without knowing what we currently have? Yeah, the information currently isn't there. Currently isn't accessible, and you try to make sense of some of the figures which are trotted around. And again, I agree entirely with Dr. Michael on this. Sometimes it's difficult to reconcile some of the figures that you're actually being told. You know, the uh, investment in primary care is this. Well, then you need to unpick that figure and actually see what do they mean whenever they quote that figure. But if you do look at some of the figures we pulled together, so we've we, we done a, a review of the health systems in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, you know, primary care general practice does seem to be having issues across all of the jurisdictions. More consultants being, more hospital consultants being employed, which is good. But while we're seeing an increase in the number of GPs being employed, it's not the number that we're seeing in hospital consultants. And yet, that's where we actually need the workforce. That's where we need to see growth for the reasons that we've already talked about. They are the people who are the bedrock of the healthcare system. Those are the people who are going, they're the first point of contact, they're the people who are man- managing uh, people's complex conditions, and they're the people who are signposting towards the, the, the other aspects of the service and ensuring that those are used efficiently.
0: Because uh, I know one thing uh, Dr. Michael mentioned at the start was the... Increases in in female GPs. Now, I suppose we should just elaborate on that. Because as I understand it, the issue there is the government needs to train, I think it's two and a half females for every male GP. Um, Because what tends to happen is female GPs, once they get married or have kids, they kind of either go take time off uh, to raise the kids or they go part time. So that's why you always have this kind of disconnect. So that I know that's kind of uh, affecting the numbers going forward, um, Doctor Mike, I'm just kind of curious this kind of issue of burnout, um, because it's even it's even worse than burnout because I know there's a huge problem, isn't there, with uh, suicide from doctors as well? Is is quite high, um, I think is there an there an issue there with the culture of medicine? Um, you know, you always hear stories probably when you were a junior doctor 100, working hundred hour weeks, and there's a very kind of macho you get approached approach to it and to have any kind of uh doubt or failing is to be seen you know as a as a negative you know you've got this kind of we, we take ultra high achievers and we literally give them the power of our life and death right <laughs> which is uh possibly never really a, a good mix so I mean should we be making G p more attractive job from the very start and kind of not waiting for when they start to crack up and burn out and say, look, a GP should only ever really work part time from the very start of their career, just so that we're not we're very conscious of, of burnout and worried yourself out. So,
1: a few things Joe, pick from that, Brand. Um, I think, uh, I think if 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 you have general practice is a fantastic career. Um, but right now it's 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 just not attractive, um, for. Many of the reasons we've already discussed uh but when when you uh, are in the right job and have the right balance between uh workload and life uh, I don't think there's any better jobs you can do um uh, I, so i I'm still you know I would still promote it as a fantastic career. we just need to put it in a better place, and things go in circles and medicine and 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 hopefully we will get to where we need to be. I think it's going to take a little while yet, but hopefully it will get there. Um, I still do think you need balance uh, in terms of what you do within that role. So uh, for me, um, I do some medical politics. I'm involved with the BMA. I'm involved with the NMC. So I'm a, um, uh, I, I, and I'm a rep for fellow GPs. I also enjoyed medical education and I did uh, teaching medical students for a long time and that offers you other opportunities. There's some uh, uh uh, other colleagues will do well uh, and have roles in hospitals, or they they, they do um, uh, a couple of lists of of minor surgery, uh, or they do dermatology, or they have an interest in in some other part of medicine, and it just gives you a different dynamic to your week and breaks it up, and 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 uh, and gives you headroom to 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 uh, and headspace to, and also other people to talk to. Um. Because the role has become so busy, you end up sitting in your room all day and you don't talk to anybody and you don't take a break for lunch. And doctors are, are, are the worst people in the world for a condition that's called presenteeism. So they, they keep going and going and going and uh, they get sick and they still keep going and going and going and they don't recognize that they're sick and they keep going into work and the the opportunities to access um any sort of occupational health service are limited for GPs. It's there, it's getting better, but it still could be improved on. And colleagues around them often don't recognize the signs uh, uh, of when somebody uh, working with them is struggling. Um, Retrospectively, if you go back and look, of course, they were there. Um, A very tragic case of a, a young GP in England last year who was working crazy hours, 16, 17 hours a day. And you described it, Brad, as the, as the, uh, you know, as, as the ultra high achievers. And often, um, this comes with perfectionism, a perfectionism, a general practice don't mix because, uh, general practice is, is, is a series of greys in medicine and you have to be able to tolerate that. Um, and. So there needs to be a balance in terms of the psychological kind of makeup of individuals. And, and some of that can be taught. Some of that can be uh, brought in. Um, oh. But a lot of it will start by uh, creating opportunities for people uh, to enter medicine who wouldn't have gotten them before. So we need to look at um, taking kids from uh, all sorts of backgrounds and walks and the and, uh, at schools where they wouldn't already get the opportunities to, to have a, a career in medicine. Um, so they've introduced, a um, an apprenticeship in England. Um, it's, a um, it, it's currently in pilot kind of form, but I think it would offer excellent opportunities for those who would, wouldn't otherwise have got the, the, the chance to be the high performers. We need to cast our net wider to get a, a more stable pool of doctors who can work in all forms of medicine A general practice needs to it's particularly in deprived areas needs to have more people working there from its own backyard Um, because these are the people who recognize the families that they're going to work with the areas that they've come from and the problems that are in those areas and they make much better doctors in those places and that's my personal view.
0: Well, why did that change? Because I think uh, I know we had this conversation before. Because I think you're from a like a working class background. So, where where did it change? Did it just be, come from universities the charges and the kind of the the high results they get into medicine just kind of encourages the kind of the, the private schools and the more the grammar schools? Is that the kind of problem? Partly all or, of the
1: above, Brian. We've created a a, a system that uh, allows and uh, people. Who are able to provide uh, tutoring and and, edu- and other things to their families uh, to get ahead and get on the and get on the the, the ladder of the of the the the, the, high, the better careers, you know. Um, and medicine is particularly guilty of it. Uh, it's I mean, if you look at the profile um, of who gets in, it's top kids from all the top performing schools, and um, uh, and not too many people would have. Uh, we come from the, the more deprived areas of of the north. They just aren't there, and we need to do more to promote that. It's a it's a gap that we that that needs to be filled. <clears throat>
0: uh, Ma- Michael, I think you want to come in there, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I suppose just a couple of things. One's a reflection on that. Is, is in the short term, if we can't have the GPs being reflecting who's well, in the local area, I'm sure that the staff and and some of the other people who are in the the primary care practice can mm-hmm. and and. I imagine that that is something that you do do. So whether it be the receptionist or or the physio or some of the other practitioners. Um, but I, I hear that point really brilliantly, but it leads on to the the other point that I had whenever you were describing there about innovation. Um, and I had this question about, do you have a autonomy Like the GPs, you know, do you have space to do stuff differently? Um, or if you step out of kind of, um, you know, the, how rigid is the system really, I suppose? no. You know, you've got the freedom to go and employ somebody different and do something kind of different and try a different initiative, or is it kind of straight-jacketed into a certain set of expectations and ways of behaving? Um, all GPs look roughly the same. Yes
1: know. no. Um, the difficulty is being allowed to do that. Um, it's being stifled again by finances. So if you take on uh, another member, a new member of staff, you then have to find uh, the super superannuation contributions for that member of staff um, and the uh, national insurance contributions for that member of staff in a fixed envelope budget with little opportunity to uh, earn over and above a budget. Uh, so okay. you're kind of, uh, and that was one of the downsides of the 2004 contract um, because prior to that, and um, There was an allowance and it was something called Basic Practice Allowance that if, if you took on new members uh, of the team, then, then your budget could expand to allow for that. Um, and we, we took that away in um, to the detriment, I believe, of, of primary care. Uh, and we've got kind of snagged into having other organizations like the federations take on those staff on our behalf I think I mean, I think that's, it's, it's, in a way, there have been advantages to that um, because putting it in a slightly bigger organisation takes out the risk um, that you would have had previously. Uh, But with that, you lose kind of flexibility in how you uh, utilise that member of staff within your own team. And primary care has always been known for its ability to innovate and do things differently, uh, particularly um, From outside hospitals, the best example of that is is IT systems. Uh, General practice have had IT systems and data since two thousand and four, uh-huh. and we're still having the conversation of putting a big IT system into our trusts. We all have squillions of IT systems all working in silos and all doing different things uh, because they, they they were let and allowed to do that over time, you know. Um, which is hugely frustrating uh, because you have all these little bits of IT that don't talk to each other. Uh, so in, in a way, we still can innovate more than, than secondary care and are still doing so uh, because we had to adopt the federation model very quickly. Um, and the flexibility within kind of general practice allowed us to do that. Trying to move trusts is like trying to move okay. uh, an oil tanker, get it to do a 180 degree turn and all the length of time it takes to do that, and all the people on board, and even then you're not guaranteed. Yeah. So, so,
2: and I know that this is kind of like a um, an extra set of demand. You like already, already, I feel sweaty listening to the amount of stuff that a GP has to look after to be able to. Because you're a business at the end of the day, but you got to manage the budgets, you have got to manage the, um, you know, all the the kind of like the health outcomes kind of work, and now you've got multidisciplinary teams as well. Um, but but I suppose the question is, um, are you able to raise funds from outside of the formal system that allows you to kind of go and do interesting stuff? I know the multidisciplinary teams have a mix that has been a short term. Is it budget that's been given? Some of it was funded by um, you know, the deal between the Tories and, and the DUP at a stage, and I'm sure that these run out by now. Um, I'm not sure if it got mainstream, but it's still from like, you know, the primary care system sort of feeding into it bit of a risk, but at the same time, you know, there's opportunities to, to get new practices and new 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 resources kind of in from elsewhere.
1: So um the business of general practice is the only business where there's so much demand, uh, but nobody wants to uh nobody wants to expand and take on that demand. Uh, where, where's the business model that doesn't want to meet the demand that's out there? So there's something fundamentally broken, you know, when that happens, uh you essentially, essentially there's your you're really constricted in your ability to kind of do things that help you get the extra income to expand in the way that you would like. Um, there are some models that, that, that can do that. I, and I think we are totally in a phase where the current contract has run its course and we need to have a look at how things are done so that we can push again, the boundaries of innovation and deliver for patient care. Um, and, uh, a general practice probably needs to lead on that, um, and it might be that that you might see that happening sooner rather than later, because we have to. Um, because at the minute, uh, I mean, the topic of the conversation is the GP crisis. Um, A general practice it is literally at the point of collapse, and I and that is no. Um, that there's that there's no underestimating that, uh, or overestimating it. People all have always accused general practitioners of of of, of um, uh, being a little bit of of panickers and and blowing up things, but this time uh, uh, I've never seen the morale of colleagues as low, and I've never seen the concern from my. Uh, uh, colleagues at uh, NIGPC as high in terms of what is coming at us um, in the next two, three, four years. Uh, yeah. And we are getting no help at the minute with that. We're getting plenty of uh, butter, but no parsnips.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> I think the, the Americans call this uh, FU money, where the problem with doctors is because me and you are quite well paid, but that means... You can retire early, and you can walk away and say, "Like I just have another, enough of this," and that that is is a factor. And I think the government, when the government treats GPs bad and doesn't give them support, people just say, "Well, saw this, I'm out of here." You know. Um, question, Michael, because I about the structure. Because I know where we're going to wrap up up soon, but, um, one thing that's always stuck in my head is take for example like the Springfield Road where you have four different GP surgeries on literally on the one street okay uh, so that's four sets of offices four sets of administration four sets of computer systems now is there not something to be said for having like for example you're in West Belfast have like a West Belfast health centre where everything's under Shh. the one roof you can have the physiotherapist you can have podiatry you can even have like x-ray maternity whatever that's called a health centre brand why, why? we're reinventing the wheel it's but, called a health centre. <laughs> yeah, but why why, why would you want to be on your own independent, would it not? Or even, why do you want to be, like, uh, self-employed? Would it not be a lot less hassle if you were to say, like, urge your salary as a GP? Turn up without all the hassle of the administration hiring people, firing people, dealing with the, the new photocopier or blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, again,
1: we'll have the conversation around efficiency. Um I I think, uh, part of going forward will involve conversations around infrastructure, and how you put uh, put that together with efficiency. The only part of the healthcare system that hasn't had any investment in its infrastructure, or very little investment in its in the infrastructure, in the last twenty years is general practice. Um, I I you could probably say there's been a few million put in, <clears throat> a couple of big health centers. A couple of new developments. So uh, Portadown was built, um, and there was Nure, Uh and Lisburn I think is about to be opened. But outside of that, there's been very very little else um, that has that has been done for prime care. And Portadown did bring uh, a, a groups of general practitioners into one setting, as did uh, as Nure, as Lisburn will when it opens. Um, and I think there are advantages of that. Within that, I, I think there is a critical number of patients that you can have with any in a, in a surgery. That does the other thing we talked about earlier, which is the continuity of care. Um, because the bigger, the, the larger number of patients that you serve, the more difficult that becomes to do. So, you know, if you look at the biggest list size in the north is currently around, I guess, 11,000. Um, and I think that's probably as big as you want to be without losing the cognitive care aspect of it. Um, and, and yes, you could put all the, the, the other AHP resource again in the same building, but we're not going to get that done anytime soon. And we can't, you know, we need to look at and discuss it, uh, where you get the funding to, to put that together because the current funding model for GP premises is actually very efficient. And delivers. It's, it's one of the most efficient uh, 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 kind of methods of, of of providing services right across the whole uh, public health spend. Um, and GPs also deliver uh, healthcare very, very efficiently and very cheaply. And people forget that, and and they concentrate on on these fat cat GPs who are loads of money and don't turn up to work. And you can't see them, but, uh, okay. but we, we 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 deliver. Yeah. GPS deliver every single time, and and uh, but uh, but at the minute we're
0: being scapegoated. Yeah, do you wanted to come in there? Uh, yeah, Just
3: uh, and again, this is sort of in in the interest of balance. If you look at how we're very critical of our of our of our healthcare system, and that's fine. You know, it, it is fine to be be critical. But it's one way of helping drive things forward. But if you look at the outcomes of our health and sort of social care system, they deliver a lot more efficiently efficiently than does, for example, the US. Spend in the US is, I think it's probably about 17, 18% of GDP per capita goes into healthcare. Whereas we're about 7, 8%, something like that. And yet our population outcomes are are better. So we do actually do things fairly efficiently. And one of the things that struck me is yeah, you know, in relation to maybe the amalgamation of practices or something like that into in, in, into 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 okay. a, a into a health center. Again, I, I think, or again, maybe perhaps having salary GPs. I think a mixed economy with respect to primary care is a good way of going because a one size fits all model doesn't reflect what society needs or what how best we can meet those needs. So some GPs will have the skill set, the interest, the energy to do things as a, you know, in a much more responsive way where they operate as the traditional sort of GP practice as a, as a self-employed person or group of individuals. Some GPs will have the skill set and the um, interest in being a salary GP. And it's good to To have the space for salary GP, you know, consultant GPs, in the same way as we have consultant nephrologists or whatever, and some people will work well together. Some people maybe, you know, uh, in sort of independent practices, and having that that mixed economy, I think is 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 a good idea and a, a good way of meeting the needs of our population. But to go back to what I was originally interjecting with, I think that our healthcare system does things a lot better than maybe we give it credit for And we, you know, in other healthcare systems, they look at us enviously at the way in which we do in actual fact meet the needs of our, of our population. One, one last thing that I want to kick into this because I don't know when we're going to run out of time. One of the things that we have to, to bear in mind is that the, the criticisms which are being leveled at primary care at the minutes or our healthcare system more generally, bear in mind where our system has been coming through over the past 10, 15 years. We had 10 years of austerity, which was no fault of the healthcare system, where the healthcare system was underfunded for 10 years or more. Then we had the pandemic, and it's never a good time to actually invest in your healthcare system, and um, but you end up in a certain place as a result of that, and that's where we're at. You know, We've had 10 years of underinvestment, then we had the pandemic, And now we have a a healthcare system where massive demand is. is, We're trying our best to actually meet massive demand as best we can. And I I think, um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think um, it's a combination of we're about to have a cost. Well, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, but now is not the good (laughs) time not to invest in our health, Um, including primary
2: care. Yeah, but the coffers are empty, aren't they? And about to be even more empty for the foreseeable future, given what's happening in the UK-wide economy, you know, and, and the two years of recession, and God knows we're back in austerity again. Until 15, yeah. Which yeah. makes
1: reform um, even more crucial. Um, because yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. as a recent Nuffield report pointed out, we could be doing better um, because our, our spend is above uh, that which is in England and Scotland and Wales, we our, our population needs are higher, so our spend is expected to be more. But we definitely could be doing better with what we have. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and again, that comes with hard decisions. But if we do make those hard decisions happen, and we do reform, I think there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Where
2: where is the Michael, where's the driver, Anke, for both of you, where is the absolute critical driver or sponsor or holder of such such a reform conversation? So who's the leader? Who's the one who's kind of got the best position or the best role to say, I'm going to bring together different aspects of the system here to sit down together and kind of do this?
1: I think um, we were on the cusp of it with Roman Swan just prior to... The DUP throwing the toys out of the pram or leaving the building. Um, They were about to announce a three-year budget for healthcare, which would made absolutely huge differences to the thought on how we spent money. One of the biggest wastes every year is is slippage, and every March uh, comes along and we go, "Oh, we've got all this extra money to spend," and what what are we spending on? I don't know. know." Um, and then you, you you know you spend it in stuff that that's stupid um it just doesn't make sense and I see things that happen you know with slippage money and and it's like it's like a a, a bargain basement uh uh fire sale you go and you buy all this stuff that you don't really need for the system because you don't have any time to plan it or think it out or 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 or, or do it you know so you know that's the first thing that would be helpful for us is is the three year budget thing because then you can start to do things actually that, that are meaningful without the thought of having to give money back at the end of the year or think so of you, you know creatively how the hell are you going to spend slippage? Um, the other thing is again what we chatted about earlier, take it out and give it in, in independence. You know, with a political oversight from a health committee to to ask the the, the questions, provide scrutiny, and but make it make it responsible. Make it an organisation that has accountability. Put people in the organisation who are accountable, and put the right people in the organisation. If you have to pay them big money, you have to pay them big money because you don't get good people. Um, that uh, that uh, you don't have to pay well. Um, so you know, uh, you get what you pay for in systems like that. And if you need expertise, then you got to pay for
0: it. So just as we start to wrap up, I kind of, from all, well, probably all three of you, I mean, kind of get some quick ideas of what you think we need to be doing. I know I know, we've talked about this before, but can I get, get like some quick specific things to say, like we need to be doing X, Y, and Z. So uh, I don't care if you want to go first or. Oh, the, the, and. Um...
3: I would agree with everything that Michael had just said and it, in relation to it probably being the, the, the health minister's role and um, supported by other members of the executive. And I think there's a bit of um, maturity starting to evidence itself, but it needs to evidence itself a damn sight quicker. And um, in relation to things then that we could do, I, I, I think with specific respect to um, primary care, if we could figure out how many um, GPs, what the whole time equivalent number of GPs are, and then feed that into what do we actually need and then plan to have that number. I think that's important. In other words, what I'm basically saying is we need to take a strategic approach and to take a strategic approach, we need information. And currently we don't have that information that well, the department doesn't have that information to have the hand. Then we need to make the the, the decision around properly resourcing primary care. And that is, as I said, the figures which are sometimes are quoted don't make sense to me you know, they'll talk about uh, a nominal uh, increase in investment of maybe 2 point something percent. And then that translates into a real increase of 3 point something percent. Those figures don't make sense. And so we need to know um, accurately what money is going into primary care and probably an increase in real terms over a sustained period of time in order to ensure the primary care is in the place where we want it to be and To help drive our our healthcare system forward, so those those would be two things: good planning and proper resourcing is what I would be arguing for, and you know, a bit of maturity on the part of our 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 political system uh, to ensure that, that actually happens.
0: Just because one of the things we didn't touch on, uh, again, this is probably one one for you, Kieran, is the whole kind of lifestyle issues. Uh, I know, Dr. Michael, you probably, I don't know what it is, percentage of your patients is, you know, like these kind of modern lifestyle problems, kind of stress, poor diets, diabetes, sleeping problems, anxiety, mild depression, all this here kind of stuff. So should we be doing more to penalize, you know, these kind of negative activities, Um, thinking of things like the sugar tax, you know, taxing fast food more? alcohol, taxes, cigarettes, I mean, do we fully take, I don't, we don't seem to be fully taking into account how these lifestyle problems are kind of affecting the health of the population and are causing problems in the health service. So we, we do those sorts of things
3: up to a point at the minute. So as you, as you say, so we have um, nudges within, within our, our tax system, such as the tax on sugar, sweetened beverages. Um, such as in Scotland, they would have the minimum unit pricing for for alcohol, and I think that's we're we're yeah. going to have that as well. We do things like that, and there are probably more examples of that that we can do, but they're 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 difficult to design, if I can put it that way, because right. I've actually done some work on this myself, and it's it it's not straightforward to 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 devise those taxes and introduce those taxes. And there's also a lot of pushback in relation to them. And you know, sometimes they're simply seen as a way of the government grabbing money and not about actually nudging people who need to be nudged in the right direction. Um, but I, I, I think there are opportunities for more of those things. I think there's opportunities there for more education. Um, and I, it, it, it's really one for, 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 for Dr. Michael. I, I don't know if we are doing everything that can be done with respect to prescribing, for example. So we would. I think prescribe nicotine patches, but you can't prescribe vapes or things like that. I I I don't know. There's a vape in this that I've seen uh, across the water. In where do you actually draw the line on that? So I saw people saying, you know, you're getting into the areas of ridiculous uh, prescribing here, where you're maybe prescribing people low alcohol beer um, if you're prescribing them, you know, vapes. And so I don't know. They're probably in relation to taxing in relation to health education and in relation to, to, to prescribing, there are probably more things that we could do to help the population health than what we're currently doing.
0: Uh, Dr. Michael, as, as we kind of wrap up, I mean, what, what, have you any ideas of what we need to be looking at to kind of improve the GP service?
1: Um, again, I, I can't argue with uh, Karen's point that they brought up earlier, you know, in terms of workforce planning, um because at the minute it's, it's a little bit like a finger in the air exercise. We think we need to know, we we know the just how many uh, GPs, but unless we know how many guys are coming through Queens and how many of those might plan to be, uh, do general practice or get a, an actual figure. Um, well, then we're, we're kind of swimming against the current. Uh, we also, you know, MDTs I think are fantastic. Um, I think we need to do more of it and built within those MDTs comes the whole kind of, um, addressing the social aspect of things and opportunities to say, post people, um, uh, to ways that they can lead a healthier lifestyle. Ultimately, um, you know, the, the social, unless you change things around deprivation and help people with basic things like housing and give them a reasonable amount of money. You know, one of the things that, uh, that, 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 that there was, I, I think it was Appleby and he showed that actually if, if you have somebody in poverty and all they do is worry about where they're going to get the heating from and where they're going to get uh, the next food kind of, um, grocery kind of uh, stock from, then they cannot think, they don't have the mental capacity to think about anything else. And then they use other things to kind of dampen down the feelings that they're having and the are so they use alcohol and smoking to kind of cope with it. And unless you actually do something to level that up and bring people out of that, then it's not going to change. And, you, you know, you're kind of uh, just... Uh, uh, beating about the edges a little bit um, so we need to do much more in that uh, in that aspect of things you know I've often said yeah. don't give people antidepressants just give them the money that you would give them you know to pay for the antidepressants because they do a lot better just with the money so, rather than a prescription because
0: it's because it, a sad issue as, as we finance the health service more it, it takes the money away from education housing all the other things which kind of exasperate the health problems you get this weird, vicious circle then. Oh, totally. But I think we we have to stop seeing
3: poverty as a problem. Sorry, the poor is a problem but see yeah. poverty as Absolutely. a problem. Yeah, Yeah. And you know, and Tony Blair, what was it he said about, you know, tough on the causes of crime. So be tough on the causes of ill health. And one of the big causes of ill health
2: are the social determinants of health is poverty.
0: Michael, is there anything you want to wrap up with? I'm...
2: I'm trying to translate this onto, okay, so how would I see this happening in a process? So how would I see a change process coming about? Um, and I would just say the most successful change processes that I've ever been part of or seen has been whenever different parts of the system come together to share their experience directly face to face. And we talked about silo work in future, and I think during that, um, and I think there's a lot of different interests here. who are working out of their own interest. And um, so the question would be like, how do you get all those interests to share what their interest is? So, if we hear from patients what it's like and they're, they're talking directly to the, the people who are planning the system, so whoever we call the commissioners of the system, and they get to, to kind of share um, their realities, then there's something different happen, I think, out of it. Because there's already so much happen. And I think that that's underappreciated or undervalued in terms of the actual sort of scale of stuff that you that, um, as GPs are already doing or as the system is trying to do. So, I think the multidisciplinary teams really is a massive innovation. You know, how, how do you kind of anchor that and, and get it into the right place? You can only do that whenever you actually start to go, okay, well, let's put the lessons from that together with the right data. So the data planning people need to be there or the data data collection people together with you as GPs, practice managers and, and patients, you yes. know, put them all in the room and then start to say, okay, well, what's the health system that we need at primary care? You know, what is the vision for it? Because I think yeah. that vision sounds a little bit lacking. So what is it that everybody wants? Um, yeah. So I think there's lots of takes on it. And then that way we can manage the expectations that, that sort of sit across mm-hmm. it as well, some of which are completely unrealistic.
0: And I think, I mean, from my perspective, just to finish off, is um, there's stuff going on here and it's probably, I don't think it's just unique to Northern Ireland, so it's probably global, is that we're terrible at complexity and listening. Because and we... Because even just doing this, like this last hour of the podcast, you kind of discover a lot more that stuff you didn't really realize or, or or know. And we seem to be quite reluctant in society. We're we're kind of addicted to these kind of little, you know, shouting matches. You know, the five minute segments on talkback about health. You know, blah blah blah. And we don't really get into the the weeds of a lot of this stuff. And we need to be kind of listening more. And we need to be talking more. And we need to be explaining more. And across. I think the GP.s seem to be doing a, a terrible job of making their case. I don't think it's I'm not it's not enough to do GPs themselves, but I think all of us in society seem to be doing a terrible job of explaining what we're about or health and education. And I think the more we can have these kind of conversations, the better, because I think once people are informed of what's going on, what the options are, the, the potential solutions, the better, because at the moment, I think especially in Northern Ireland, we've got this mindset where everything's terrible and getting worse. And we we almost kind of need to break out and see that there is options there, and we can do things better.
1: But as you know, positive note is very important, Brian. You know, and and as I was saying earlier, that I think there are opportunities there, but that window of grabbing those opportunities is is, is really really small now. Um, and we we need to get a move on. I think we're pretty much done. I I mean, there's there's uh, there's a little bit of work. To be done around primary care services, how we structure them. I think that we've made a very good start on what we want to do in terms of an approach, and uh, maybe it's not it hasn't been articulated as well as it could be. Um, we have other we have this new structure coming up called integrated care systems, and that we're going to copy from England, which will be another acronym that's rehashed to the same people in the same rooms. But anyway, uh, we'll see how that works. Um, but again, there should be opportunity within that to do things better, and hopefully it'll be driven by data. Um, and we know that uh, having good data can provide us with uh, ways of working that we hadn't counted before and putting resource where we actually need to put the resource. So hopefully we're we'll able to get some help with that. Um, and then we can uh, 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 match up with the workforce planning so that we, we have the right people to do what we want to do in the right places
0: okay Uh that's cool well I think we'll we'll wrap it up there Um so good could speak thank you to Dr. Michael McKenna thank you and Kieran O'Neill from Queens and uh Michael Donnelly and you've been listening to the Slugger podcast so please subscribe for future episodes and we'll see you soon